Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome my titans, warlords, enforcers, and of course, my lovely new listeners. Today's tales are of the creepy kind and not for little ears. At least the first one most certainly is not. I bring you Demonic Monstrous Children, a forest that does its best to hold the screams of the dead in, and the true tale of the missing Howards that inspired a hit song by Fastball, which I had no idea ever existed. So strap yourselves in, you amazing people. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and stay away from children that resemble the thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. Enjoy. Another Hungry Mouth Constance would not tell anyone who the father was. Not when her mother cried, nor when her father yelled. Not even when her older sister, Emily, sat on her bed and held her in her arms, rocking her gently. Constance was four months pregnant when she told her family, and was already beginning to show. Emily was furious at herself for not picking up on the signs earlier. The baggy clothes Constance was preferencing over her usual tailored look, her out-of-control appetite, her strange secretiveness. It all seemed so obvious now. Still, how could anyone have been expected to guess this? This was Constance after all. Constance the meekly obedient, Constance the prim and proper, Constance the chronically shy. She was supposed to be the good daughter. And then, of course, there was that other thing. But I thought you didn't even like boys, Emily pressed. Constance wrinkled her nose in distaste. I don't, she replied empathetically. But I wouldn't exactly call them a boy. She added with a sly smile. Emily jerked away in shock. What? She cried. Constant lifted her hand up to her mouth to stifle a giggle. How old is this guy? Emily asked, unable to keep the stern edge out of her voice. I... I don't know. Constance confessed and her smile suddenly fading, began to wring her hands. Pretty old, I think. You think? Constance shrugged. Connie, who? No! Constance yelled so suddenly and so loud that Emily gave a startled jump. Constance reached out and clasped Emily's hands tightly in her own. Emily, she pleaded. Don't ask me that, please. I swore I'd never tell. Emily snatched her hands away. She could feel anger rising in her throat like bile. Connie, if you're protecting some creep... <laughs> Constance laughed. Emily didn't see what was so funny. It's not like that. She insisted when her fit of giggles subsided. It's more like... She paused and stared off somewhere in the middle distance over Emily's shoulder. It's like... Have you ever had a secret that you didn't want to tell anyone, 
because it would make it less special, less yours. Emily nodded slowly, although she wasn't at all sure that she had. Wasn't part of the fun of having a secret in telling it to somebody? It's like that. Constance continued. This belongs to me, and I don't want to share it with anybody. Not even me. Emily wheedled, but Constance just continued to stare at nothing, a soft smile playing at the corners of her mouth. The last few months leading up to Constance's confinement were tense, to say the least. Constance's condition could not be kept a secret for long, and in the way of small towns, once one person found out, the news spread like a virus, persistent and insidious. Rumors abounded about the identity of the father, and it seemed that no male with any link to Constance was exempt from having gleefully accustomed fingers pointed in his direction. Her schoolmates, her teachers, and even her doctor. One particularly malicious gossip suggested that the reason Constance would not talk about the father was that it was her own father. When Emily heard this rumor, she tracked it back to its source, a pimply little boy in year eight, and delivered one devastating punch to his blemished features, earning herself a week's suspension and the boy a bloodied nose and split lip. Things were even more strained at home. Dinners had become a silent affair with neither of their parents so much as glancing up from their plates to look at Constance. Emily had to grit her teeth in rage that the familial bond that linked parents and daughters could have proven to be so weak. What surprised Emily more than anything, though, was how unfazed Constance seemed to be by all of this. Where every whispered slur or raised eyebrow caused Emily to bristle, Constance breezed through her days, with her head held high as though completely oblivious to the shame that her family felt that people expected her to feel. Amidst all the murk and mire and causal cruelty, casual cruelty, Constance glowed. Emily had never loved her sister more. When the child arrived and Emily was finally allowed in to visit, she was dumbstruck. There was Constance, sweaty and tired-eyed but beaming, and in her arms a tiny, wrinkled form, Constance's son, James. Constance informed her without looking up. The fact that her little sister, her own Connie, had created this tiny person as though from nothing filled Emily with a quiet awe. When Constance finally tore her love-struck gaze from her new baby and looked up, Emily saw that her sister's eyes were filmed with tears and she felt a lump rise in her own throat. The sister's eyes locked and they were both overcome with a joy so bright and intense that it seemed like it would last forever. It did not. Failure to thrive was the term the pediatrician used, and what it amounted to was that despite apparently feeding normally, James was not putting on any weight. In fact, over the next 12 weeks, James dropped down to almost 200 grams below his birth weight. They ran all kinds of tests. Emily accompanied her sister and nephew to what seemed like an endless cycle of doctor's offices and waiting rooms and consulting suites, 
where sympathetic people with stethoscopes about their necks spoke in hushed tones with things like caloric retention and metabolic demand. All Constance ever seemed able to say in response was, Oh. As days passed, all Emily could do was watch as her sister grew paler and more anxious. As James lost weight, Constance too seemed to diminish. She became absent-minded and vague, forgetting tasks part way through and often trailing off mid-sentence. She drew in on herself until she had little more substance than her own shadow. Emily wanted to help Constance, but it was like she could no longer reach her. With every day, Constance sank deeper and deeper into some dark pit, and however hard she tried, Emily just couldn't follow her. All the tests came back negative, and with every result, Emily saw relief fighting with anxiety in her sister's drawn face. So James didn't have... So James didn't have cystic fibrosis, or diabetes, or hypothyroidism. But what was wrong with him? Emily was not sure what had woken her up. She lay there for some time in the early morning chill, staring blankly at the ceiling while a sense of dread slowly crept up on her, starting as a feeling of discomfort in her belly and culminating in a dull thudding in her breast. It was then that she noticed the sickly yellow light seeping under her bedroom door. She rolled over to face the glow and noticed as she did that her alarm clock displayed 2.15am. Too late for her parents and too early for Constance, surely. Reluctantly, Emily dragged her sleep-heavy body out of bed and shuffled towards her bedroom door. When she opened it, she saw that the source of the light was not one of the other bedrooms, but rather the kitchen across the hallway. Grumbling to herself, Emily made her shambling progress towards the kitchen where she found the fridge door wide open and humming slightly. Still groggy, she vaguely noticed that the fridge's contents were in a greater state of disarray than usual before closing the door and making her way back to her bedroom. Halfway down the hallway, Emily halted as she heard a noise coming from Constance's room, a soft serration. She recognized her sister's voice, but the pitch was too low for her to make out the words. Emily began to move again, but something in the tone of the voice emanating from the darkness of Constance's room stayed her, a wheedling note edge with a quiet urgency, and brought back that creeping dread that first dragged her from her slumber. Connie? Emily asked anxiously as she opened the door. When she heard no response, just a continuation of Constance's hushed whispers, Emily flicked on the light. Constance was bent over James's crib, and it took several moments before she straightened up and, blinking at the light, turned to face her sister. Emily stifled her own cry of surprise when she saw Constance's face. The young girl's eyes were bloodshot, from lack of sleep and dark rings hung below them. It was not this that took Emily aback, however, but the expression in those strained eyes. A startled, trapped look, almost feral in its intensity, flickered across Constance's eyes, rendering the familiar features alien to Emily. It was Constance who broke the silence. 
He won't eat, she said to Emily, her tone desperate. I don't know what he eats. Emily's eyes darted down, and she saw that her sister was clutching something tightly in her right hand, a lumpy mass that dripped on the rug. So incongruous was the sight that Emily did not immediately register what it was. A raw steak. Emily stared in mute shock while her mind reeled. What was Constance doing with that meat? What was she thinking? Emily swallowed a lump in her throat and then began, slowly, and with soothing noises to advance on Constance. Shh, Connie. She crooned gently. When Emily reached her younger sister, she took her hands, which she saw then were trembling violently in her own, surreptitiously removing the slab of meat and placing it on the changing table. She glanced down into the crib and noted that James seemed to be sleeping soundly. Gently, she guided Constance back to her bed and persuaded her to lie down. Once she was beneath the covers, Constance began to weep softly. I don't don't know know what he is. She choked out between sobs. Emily stayed seated on the edge of her sister's bed and stroked her long, dark hair until she fell asleep. That feeling of uneasiness stayed with Emily all through the next day. It was Saturday, and her friends wanted to go to the movies, but she blew them off. Her parents were both away for the weekend, and the idea of sitting there in the dark while Constance stayed home alone with James was intolerable to Emily. Instead, she spent the entire day just hanging around the house, unable to commit herself to any activity for more than a few minutes. She found herself hovering around Constance and watching her critically. She couldn't seem to get out of her head that image of Constance standing over James's crib with the lights out clutching a chunk of meat. For her part, Constance behaved as if the previous night had not happened at all. She changed James and bathed him. She gave him his formula and even played with him on the lounge room floor, tickling his feet and blowing raspberries on his too flat tummy. She would lift him up in the air and kiss his middle almost as if, for a moment at least, She did not notice the worrying concave of her son's belly. She did not notice the worrying concave of her son's belly. As Emily watched Constance, however, she could not keep herself from thinking that her sister's smile looked strangely painted on and that there was something more than just fatigue behind her red-rimmed eyes. Emily slept fitfully that night. Her sleep was disturbed by strange nightmares that although she forgot their content almost immediately after she awoke, left her feeling shaky and disoriented. When a sudden wail from James pierced the night, Emily immediately sat bolt upright, then propelled herself out of bed almost before she had registered what the sound was. She had heard James's cries often enough to be familiar with them, could even tune them out most nights, But they were different this time. These cries were much, much louder than normal, but also strangely wet. 
It was as though the infant were choking on some sort of fluid. Emily threw the door to Constance's room open. Connie, what's wrong? She gasped, feeling with each breath that she may choke on her own heart. She was in such a rush, she forgot to switch on the light as she charged towards the door and towards her sister. I heard... Oh! Came Constance's startled cry as she dropped something to the floor. A bloody kitchen knife. What? What have you done? Emily whispered. She took a step toward Constance, then turned and ran up to the crib where James had suddenly stopped his piercing wails. Emily, shaking now, stared down at her nephew. There was a red, jagged line that ran along the child's belly, starting at the base of his throat and running all the way down below his navel. To Emily's horror, the gash began to gape, exposing a bloody red interior out of which protruded the shattered remnants of James's ribcage, now just jagged fragments of bone. Oh my god, Connie. What have you done? Emily braced herself against the side of the crib as she fought off waves of nausea and disbelief. She felt her head spin and her vision begin to blur as her breath caught in her throat. But still, she could not tear her eyes away from her nephew's twisted form. After what seemed an interminable time, Emily's breath returned to her, though it was shallow and ragged, as her vision cleared and adjusted to the faint light that filtered in from the open curtain. She realized that she had made a mistake. In her initial shock, Emily had thought the white shards in James's split torso to be ribs, but now she saw that this was not the case at all. They were teeth. Great jagged teeth in a crooked, sideways mouth that ran most of the length of James's tiny body. As Emily watched, the terrible nether mouth began to gape again, wider this time, and from out of this impossible depth, shaped a black, slimy tendril that could only be a tongue. Letting out a strangled cry, Emily stumbled backwards and watched as the tongue rose up and out of the crib, flailing back and forth as though tasting the air. The tongue reached all the way to the changing table and began to tap on its surface, exploring. It was only then that Emily saw the rat, a fuzzy mound lying on the changing table, its head crudely cut off. As Emily watched, the tongue slowly slid towards the inert rodent and then, with horrible deafness, wrapped around it and lifted it off the table, pulling it back towards the crib and the terrible waiting more. The tongue made a wet, slurping noise as it retreated back behind the crooked fangs. From somewhere behind Emily came a weak cry of, Oh! Emily had forgotten Constance was even there. Emily turned and saw Constance standing there, her hands clasped so tightly together that the knuckles were white. Her moist, febrile eyes glittered in the dim light. Emily saw that there was no fear in those eyes, only wonder. Oh, Emily! Constance sighed again then continued rapturously. He looks just like his father.
The Daring Woods. The Daring Woods, also known as Screaming Woods, are situated in Kent, between the villages of Smarden and Pluckley. They are reputed to be the most haunted woods in Britain, and they were given their name because of the many reports of people hearing terrifying screams coming from the forest at night, or footsteps and whispers during days of fog. The forest is said to be haunted by the ghosts of the people who get lost in them. In particular, the locals mention a suicidal army colonel of the 18th century and a highwayman who was captured by the villagers, pinned to a tree, and beheaded. Many from the nearby villages swear to have seen black shadows following them while they were travelling across the forest. The wood is also famous for presenting one of the oldest Neolithic sites in the world. British physicist B. Josephson has studied the phenomenon for years during his research at Cavendish Laboratory for the Mind Matter Unification Project, documenting everything in the peer-reviewed paper Quantitative Measurement of Decoherence, a link between consciousness and group-theoretic characterization of hyperplanes of existence. In a recent interview, he criticized the skeptic approach of many scientists. The trouble is that the scientific community is unaware of these results because very little of this work is published in journals like Nature and Science, and the work is often ridiculed when it is published in respectable physics journals. He cites the example of a paper on quantum mechanics by Henry Stump of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that contained a reference to parapsychology. Physicists have an emotional response when they hear anything connected with parapsychology, he says. Their opinion of parapsychology research is not based on evaluation of the evidence, but on a dogmatic belief that all research in this field is false. And that brings us to the Deeringwood Massacre. The woodland has been the centre of attention for this phenomena for many years. On the morning of November 1st, 1948, 20 people from the Maltman's area were found dead, 11 of whom were children. The bodies were forming a massive pile of human flesh and they didn't present any wound. Many reported seeing strange lights coming from the forest on the night of Halloween, when the massacre took place. The autopsies couldn't determine the cause of death, and after a few weeks, the local authorities quickly ended the investigation, stating that the cause was carbon monoxide poisoning. This behavior raised questions about a possible involvement of the police in the matter at the time. In 1964, Private investigator Robert Collins conducted in-depth witness interviews designed to uncover hints about the alleged activity of an unknown religious cult in the village of Smarden. His research stopped after he died in a tragic car accident the following year. The Daring Wood was home for another mystery though, when on October 1998, on the same night of the 50 years before, four college students who were visiting the forest went missing after people from Pluckley reported seeing figures of light similar to spiderwebs in the sky. Their bodies were never found and after three weeks, the police investigation stopped. I'll include five references to this phenomena in the show notes. Do take a look when you have some time. The Deaths of Leela and Raymond Howard Every now and then, my thoughts drift towards the deaths of Leela and Raymond Howard. When that happens, a multitude of questions usually start to plague my mind. What could have prevented their demise? Did they suffer? How many chances to save them were wasted? 
and how many warning signs were ignored. But what really pained me to not know is, how did it all end? Note, the following is a true story. On Sunday, June 29th, 1997, elderly couple Leela and Raymond Howard from Salado, Texas, decided that they were going to a day festival in Temple, a nearby town. It was to be a 15-mile trip, and Leela was driving. The couple departed that morning, despite earlier objections by Leela's son, who had begged to drive his mother and father himself instead. Leela declined, saying, No, we know where to go. We go every year. Leela's son's concern stemmed from the fact that his 83-year-old mother was showing signs of Alzheimer's disease and was often easily confused at things. At one time, Leela even meant to show up at a local Walmart for morning coffee at 10.30am, but instead arrived at 10.30pm, perplexed at why the sun was not yet up. 88-year-old Raymond, too, was showing signs of mental deterioration, due to a recent brain surgery done to combat a stroke and head injury. Leela and Raymond, though, were not aware of their severe mental decline, and left for the festival that morning without even telling their other adult son, who lived just next door. The afternoon passed and the Howards didn't return home. However, at a local Walmart in Temple, a greeter there remembered seeing Leela and Raymond coming in for coffee during the afternoon. After that, the couple's movements could not be accounted for. The several children between the two had become immensely worried for their elderly parents' safety, so they contacted the authorities and a missing persons bulletin was posted that day. The Howards remained missing. Three days later, on Wednesday, July 2nd, a newspaper article was published in the Austin American Statesman about the missing couple titled, Elderly Salado Couple Missing on a Trip to Nowhere. It read, Leela and Raymond Howard are on a four-day road trip into thin air. The Central Texas couple, in their 80s, with diminishing health, somehow have turned a 15-mile journey for a cup of coffee and a party into a 500-mile-plus misadventure with no known destination. That same day, a deputy in rural Arkansas pulled over Leela for driving with her headlights off, as it was nighttime. Leela and Raymond were 500 miles away from their original starting point in Salado, Texas. The deputy later noted that Leela was polite, gentle, and acted just like my grandmother. When Leela stated that they were trying to get back to Texas, the deputy noted that they were headed in the wrong direction if they were trying to return to that state so he gave them directions. The deputy then asked Leela where she lived, but she could not remember. The deputy let them off with only a warning. The couple were pulled over again about half an hour later for driving with their high beams on. This deputy also let them go. Neither of the deputies knew about the newspaper article, nor that the Howards were missing persons. The Howards once again disappeared. The next day on Thursday, July 3rd, there was another article about the Howards. They had allegedly been spotted at a farmer's market in Arkansas, and authorities in 11 states were on the lookout for them. On Friday, July 4th, another article stated that authorities had narrowed their search to three specific counties in Arkansas. There were no further developments in the search until Wednesday, July 9th, when the couple's story was covered on the CBS Morning News show. Yet another newspaper article was published about the Howards in the Austin American Statesman making the front page. That article's editor, Denise Gamino, stopped by the Howards' house and the signs of the couple's mental decay were obvious. 
there was folded clothing still laying on the couple's bed, as if they started packing for some sort of long trip. Their television was unplugged and hearing aids were left behind in the bathroom, as well as various toiletries. Even though the month was currently July, the Howard calendar was still on the page for February. Perhaps most notably, the Howard cat, Happy, was left behind, essentially abandoned. The couple's children and grandchildren were apparently unaware of how bad their parents' mental health had become. The search intensified, as authorities employed dozens of deputies, carefully combined obscure backroads and brush areas, posted flyers, and questioned many civilians over a very large area. Helicopters were even later used in the search, and the search area grew to 1,000 miles from Salado, Texas. By then, one of the Howards' grandsons had offered a reward of $1,000 for his grandparents' safe return. Tips came flooding in after the CBS morning show, but none led to the Howards' discovery. The next day on Thursday, July 10th, one of the Howards' children remarked in a newspaper article, The hardest part is thinking that they are suffering or need us and we can't get to them. Another bleakly stated, I just don't think we're going to find them alive now. Unfortunately, everyone's worst fears were finally realized on Saturday, July 12th, when the bodies of Leela and Raymond Howard were discovered in their car by hikers at the bottom of a 25-foot cliff just outside Hot Springs, Arkansas. Raymond was still in the passenger seat, but Leela was about 20 feet away in a ravine, still clutching her purse and car keys. Apparently, after the car went over the cliff, she put her car in park, turned off her headlights, opened the passenger side door for her deceased husband and crawled away to die of her injuries sustained in the crash. There were no skid marks found at the top of the cliff, indicating that Leela's car had been driven straight off the edge. A crash scene investigator estimated that the car had been going around 50 miles per hour on the stretch of road leading up to the cliff. Leela likely didn't see the cliff edge or was in some other way distracted, or even became momentarily confused and lost the ability to safely drive. It is not known for how long the Howards' bodies remained undiscovered. Sadly, the crash site where Leela and Raymond's bodies were found was within a zone previously searched by the authorities, but searchers could not see the bottom of the cliff due to excess brush in their line of sight. Leela and Raymond were later buried next to their respective first spouses. Austin, Texas songwriter Tony Scalzo read the July 2nd newspaper article in the Austin American Statesman in the midst of the search for Leela and Raymond, and he became inspired. He wrote a song with his alternative rock band, Fastball, based on Leela and Raymond's disappearance. It was titled, The Way. About the song, Scalzo said, It's a romanticized take on what happened. Picture them taking off to have fun. Not they did when they first met. Scalzo wrote the song before the Howards' bodies were discovered. The album contained The Way All the Pain Money Can Buy, was released in 1998, one year after the Howards' bodies were discovered. Despite The Way's cheerful, optimistic sound, its lyrics are haunting. And these lyrics are as follows. They made up their minds and they started packing. They left before the sun came up that day, and exit to eternal summer slacking. But where were they going without ever knowing The Way? They drank up the wine and they got to talking. They now had more important things to say. And when the car broke down, they started walking. Where were they going without ever knowing the way?
anyone can see the road that they walk on is paved in gold. And it's always summer, they'll never get conned. They'll never get hungry. They'll never get old and grey. You can see their shadows wandering off somewhere. They won't make it home, but they really don't care. They wanted the highway. They're happier there today, today. Their children woke up and they couldn't find them. They left before the sun came up that day. They just drove off and left it all behind them. But where were they going without ever knowing the way? My thoughts again return to Leela and Raymond Howard barreling off that cliff in Arkansas. Unfortunately, I never seemed to get any answers for my questions. I suppose that I could only guess. Maybe Leela had seen the cliff's edge, but didn't have enough time to react. I wonder if she even had the mental faculties to function anymore. It leaves me thinking, what was going through their heads as their car plunged off the cliff edge? Fear? Confusion? I'd like to think otherwise. Perhaps in that moment it wasn't 1997 anymore. Maybe it was a much earlier time for them. Maybe their damaged psyches spared them from the sad reality. Perhaps in that moment for Leela and Raymond, there were no more medications, no more hearing aids and no more doctor's appointments. No aching joints, no glasses, no operations, no pacemakers, no forgetting, and no more confusion. Maybe in that moment and for their entire trip, Leela and Raymond saw themselves as a newlywed couple their young skin perpetually gleaming in the summer sun. Leela in her best white wedding dress and Raymond in his finest black tuxedo. Maybe they envisioned a just married sign hanging on the back of their rear window and empty soup cans tied to their rear bumper. I wonder if they held hands. Maybe when Leela and Raymond Howard drove off that cliff in Arkansas in 1997, they weren't scared. Maybe they were smiling. Well, mates, I both creeped out myself reading these tales and learned something new regarding Fastball's music. The child born of union between human and monster, dare I say, Cthulhu-inspired heritage. Mind you, what isn't Cthulhu-inspired these days? Perhaps because H.P. Lovecraft's creatures are simply so iconic that it leaks into everything else we see in media. But I digress. I like, though, how the story conjures up the visuals of the child monster and the madness that Emily succumbs to in the presence of her own child. So many questions in this one about what happens after, and I really enjoyed how they built up to Emily's complete mental disparity as the finale. Very well crafted. The daring woods whose trees hold back the screams, and a multitude of dead mysterious bodies. I like myself a good haunted woods, and none more so than a haunted woods that exists in reality, with supporting documentation linked to the story. Superb setup and a great execution. I'm not going to be visiting these woods anytime soon, though. And lastly, the real case of the missing Howards. Goodness, tragic, unique, and a special story nonetheless. Mates, I hope you enjoyed these tales, and if you enjoyed the episode, well, you have 683 other episodes to get through. It's okay, I'll wait right here. <laughs> if you like what I do and have any time of the day spare, leave an iTunes review and let me know what you think of the podcast. If you love what I do, then be sure to swing on by my Patreon page to support me. 
Your help goes a long, long way to restoring old-time radio episodes all the way back in 1940s, as well as supporting creative writers and authors to continue to hone their craft. You actually make a big, big difference. And now, I want to thank the legends that do just that, my Patreon supporters. First up is El Major Reina de los Gatos. Maya, the queen of the cats, and boy oh do you have some gorgeous cats. They get cuter with every picture. Now, thanks to you mate, I've been able to source some brand new Sherlock Holmes episodes and recently have been messing around with some new tech to help me push the limits of my existing remastering software. It's still in early days but I'm making progress for sure. And whilst I'm here, I want to pass on a message to Paige Kramer from one supporter to another regarding Paige's little blue baby story. Maya wrote to me, wow, Paige Kramer, that's some amazing stuff. Gave me the shivers in the best ways. Awesome job, Paige. I always say it, my supporters are so, so special. Thank you, Maya, for your support and lovely comments. To another supporter, you're brilliant. And my white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex. Mate, thanks for your epic support and brilliant emails. At times, I don't get a chance to respond to your amazing emails or Gmail goes ahead and dies on me. But I find myself rereading and re-appreciating the communications that I receive from you, mate. Thank you so much for taking the time to respond and also supporting this show at the level that you do. I'm very, very lucky to have your support, Lesa. And it's people like you that help push this show forward. We'll be in touch this weekend, buddy. Thanks again. And my next white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, the awesome gal that puts a pep in my step. Thank you for your lovely communications as well. It's a joy hearing from you. I'm putting your support aside now to work on improving the website and also supporting other authors and voice actors. Thanks to you, Paige, I'm able to broaden my horizons when it comes to new tales. And for that, thank you very, very much. I'll also be responding soon to your lovely messages as well. It's a joy talking to you, mate, so keep an eye out. And the liquid lightning that streams through this podcast veins are my Earl Grey Enforcers. I am so lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrieve, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. If you want to be like these awesome people, you can support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt thank all of you for being amazing and supporting me and the show with your dollary dues not a dime gets wasted on improving the show daily stick with me friday for something very different as i spice things up and have a great wednesday as always mates till next we meet